Hey, what's going on, guys? It's Michael from the Honest Youth Pastor YouTube channel, the channel that uses biblical discernment to help all believers in all aspects of life. Today, we're going to be doing that by looking at a sermon given by Andy Stanley. Each week, we look at a variety of different pastors to do the same thing, looking at the sermons, working through them, asking three specific questions. One, do they read the scriptures? Two, do they exegete the scriptures using context and culture to bring out application for the modern believer? And three, do they mention the gospel of Christ? Now, if you want to do this with the sermons that you listen to, whether in person or online, I have a link in the description section for a free PDF that you can download, print off, and do the same. Uh, it's built the same way that I use when I listen to sermons at my church or when I listen to sermons online. Now, to that point, typically I try to watch these sermons three times through so that I don't miss anything. This sermon, however, was just recently sent to me, and I have not had time to get through any of it. So we are going to be watching this freshly together for the first time, except, of course, the clip that I made uh, that I made a meme out of. So there will be that. Now, with that being said, there may be some things I miss. I'd be interested to see as we listen through here. If there's something that you think I missed that you picked up, leave it in the comment section below. Or as always with these sermon reviews, if you think I'm being overly critical, underly critical, let me know. The conversation, I think, helps make uh, these better and it helps me do this better. So with that being said, don't want to keep you too long. If you want to watch the whole sermon without my commentary, as always, link in the description below. It'll take you to the North Point website because it's apparently this is too old for YouTube. They didn't upload this one to YouTube. You have to go to their site for it. So that being said, we're going to jump into it. It's from a series called May, uh, Brand New. Uh, it's a play on brand as in brand like uh, a clothing brand or a person's brand. Uh, that the church needs to a uh, new brand, essentially. Now, this is the third or fourth uh, sermon in this series, so we have missed a couple sermons. But again, all sermons are pretty much standalone, even if they are connected to a longer uh, series. So that being said, I'm going to go ahead and push play. I don't want to keep you too long because we do have to make it through a 40-minute sermon. So let's get to it now. So we're in part uh, three of a brand new series that we creatively named Brand New. How about that? And if you missed the, the first two parts, you need to go back and watch them. You're sort of coming in on the, in the middle of a five-part movie, okay? So part, we're right in the middle, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. But if you go to brandnewseries.org, you can see the first two. You can see all of these. They'll be up there as long as you have electricity and there's an internet. If you are in a small group, you can download a PDF. And actually, just, we have some, dis some discussion questions we've created for you. You can discuss this content in your small group. I'd love for you to wrestle with it as we move through it because some of this is just a little bit different. Now, here's something we all know. Religion, religion, religion is such a powerful, powerful thing. And because religion is so powerful, religion can also be very dangerous. And oftentimes, as you know, religion and ends up in the hands of a very few group of people, generally men. Religion, the, one, of the reasons that makes it, one of the reasons it's so powerful and dangerous is because it's often fueled by superstition and fear. But perhaps the thing that makes religion so powerful is that it is anchored in our conscience. It's anchored in our conscience and our conscience so often drives our behavior and our conscience can be you know, connected to truth, but our conscience can also be connected to error. And as we said last week, our consciences actually determine religious realities, whether they reflect reality or not. Now, all of us have experienced this. There are things that you used to feel religiously guilty about that you don't feel guilty about anymore. 
There are things you currently feel guilty about because of your current, you know, where you are in terms of your religious journey that in the past you didn't feel guilty about. In our country, we have seen, seen extraordinary changes in national conscience as our nation has moved one direction or the other. That ultimately, though, for those of us who are Christians or those of us that grew up in the United States or even in the West, our consciences, whether you're aware of it or not, have been shaped by a version of Christianity, even if you don't consider yourself a Christian or a religious person. To some degree, your conscience, our consciences have been shaped by a version of Christianity, a type of Christianity that is a combination of both what Jesus actually taught and what the temple model, as we've described in this series, has actually taught us as well. And all of us, our consciences have been fine-tuned to where we feel the way we do toward God. We feel the way we do towards... So one thing that I think he's starting off here, he's trying to pack two sermons worth into one here, which is helpful. This is good because he's trying to catch people up on where he's been so that by the time if you're just walking in like we are to this sermon series and to this sermon in particular, we're not totally lost. Now, the one thing he says here that I think is helpful in this review is acknowledging the fact that we we are a people that have been shaped by a variety of different things that have come before us. He specifically mentions the temple model, which I'm not quite sure what he's referencing there within a last sermon that he preached. But he's saying that it's the Jesus, it's the the version of Christianity that Jesus taught, and the version of the temple model that we then apply. And what he's saying is those two things together have brought us to a point to where we believe what we do because of how we've been influenced by those two things, which is true of all people, right? Everyone, everywhere, uh, ev everyone, everywhere has been influenced by. Um, what has come before them in regards to history, in regards to religion. Uh, if you look even at some of the, um, the belief systems within Judaism, we see a development based upon uh, things they brought uh, or learned or brought out of exile and throughout the time uh, that they had as well. So I think one of the things that's important to note is that we've all been influenced by a variety of different things. And we do need to acknowledge that and say, what are the good things here? What are the, the bad things here? Which I think is what Andy's primarily trying to break down um, and explain in general um, to his people. So let, let, let's see where else he takes this in his intro. Sin, we feel the way that we do toward one another because of essentially what we've been taught. Whoever controls your conscience ultimately controls your behavior. So what we're trying to do in this series is to kind of tease out and to separate out the movement that Jesus began and what we refer to as the temple model. Now, when I say temple model, I'm not specifically talking about the Jewish temple, although it includes that. The temple model is essentially a template for religion that goes all the way back further than the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, certainly the Jews, um, the mud hut religion, um, regions of the world today where you find witch doctors and in other areas of the world where there is still this template in place. The temple model looks like this. There are always sacred places. There are always sacred texts, oracles, inscriptions, documents, you know, religious texts. Sacred men, it's always men, isn't it? Along with sincere followers, or in some cases you might say superstitious followers, or scared followers, or scarred followers. But there's always a group of people that are dependent. Okay, so... What he, he did answer, which is good. Uh, so I want to address that, what temple model meant. Um, so basically, what he's setting up then is this idea that every religion in every place, everywhere, throughout all time, has certain aspects to it that are similar to one another, which is interesting if you look into it. Um, 
there have been plenty of books written about it. I'm not sure the book that I'm even thinking of now because I'm not sure if Matt told me, but Matt, uh, one of the co-admins over at Instagram on our uh, on our IG page, is going through a book where it's looking at temple models as far as the Jewish temple model relating to past temple models all the way back to it being based upon like the Garden of Eden. Anyway, it sounds super interesting. I am not intelligent enough or even informed enough to to talk it out here in this video. But my point being connecting to that is that Andy's right in regards to everyone, every religion has a structure. Now, I do just want to mention this because he's mentioned it twice. This whole men in charge thing. He's really, he seems like he's purposefully making a point of that in order to sort of uh, poke fun at it, which is interesting. I'll see where he goes with that. Um, and then I think the the bigger thing here is if you're setting this up, then how are we going to distinguish Christianity from the these other religions that have similar um, similar features to them, right? Because if we're believers, what we're essentially saying, and I, and I know a lot of people don't like to word it this way, but what we're essentially saying, Christ is supreme overall. So um, his teachings are supreme overall, and therefore all other religions and all other teachings are not. Uh, correct or or right, uh, Christ's teachings are. So then how do you sort of parse that out a little bit? So it'll be interesting to see how he does that. Also, what's more interesting to me is what text is he going to base this on in order to teach his people? Uh, or are we going to have a text at all? That'll be interesting to see what he does there as well. Let's get back to it. Upon the words and the teachings of a certain group of men to understand where they stand with God that these men stand at the gates of heaven and hell and determine who goes where. And our consciences are fine-tuned to that teaching. It's why some of you have abandoned religion once and for all and have walked away from all religion because you're sort of onto it. You see through it. And consequently, you want to have nothing to do with it. And there's great news for you. When Jesus Christ showed up on the planet, he launched something absolutely brand new. It was not Temple 201 or 301. It was not a knockoff of the Jewish religion. It wasn't something that was, you know, sort of a version of something that had ever happened before. That Jesus said, I have come to do something entirely new. And whereas the temple model is always geographically specific, every nation had their own version of the temple. Every nation had their own version of a religion that looked a lot like their neighbor's religions. Jesus said, I... Okay, uh, before we get too far away from that comment about Jesus coming in and not making Judaism 2.0, I think it is worth noting, and I don't mean to pause on his face like that, so try to try to ignore that. But um, for a very long time, th the Christians in the early first century were literally just thought to be another Jewish sect because they were so closely related to they they acted like them so they didn't think that this was christianity was a whole nother thing in fact there's a lot that plays into christianity and judaism sort of partying and having a schism there uh but for a good amount of time within the early christian tradition it was just assumed that this was a nut this was a jewish sect it was a break off from judaism but it was it was very highly connected to Judaism. In fact, we don't have a real break from Judaism until 
uh, some sort of anti-Semitic writings start happening, and there starts to be a, a schism uh, within the Christ followers and the Jewish, uh, the uh, Judaism in particular. So that's an odd comment to make because historically we have documentation that demonstrates that the Roman Empire specifically viewed Christianity as just another Jewish sect with a few different uh, sort of modifications to it. Now again, there there were I mean. You don't necessarily need to take the the Jewish you know or the empire's view on Judaism for you know without a little bit of you know uh, discernment there, but that's what they saw. That's what they they assumed it was, and there was no difference to them other than the fact that these Christians followed Christ, but they were just a Jewish sect broken off was the assumption there. So anyway, let's let's hop back into it. But I want to make I want to say that before we got too far away from that comment. I have come to launch something that is for all people of all nations for all time. He established a new covenant, a new arrangement between God and man. He established, he gave a new command. He said, every temple system has lots and lots and lots of laws. I want to give you one command. And this one command is to be the filter through which you view all other commands. This one command is going to serve for you as an ethic through which you make all your decisions. When you aren't sure what to do, you ask, what does love require of you? When you aren't sure what to do, you stop and pause and you ask the question, what does love require of you? And he launched a new movement. He said, I'm going to establish a new ecclesia, a new gathering, a new congregation. And unfortunately, instead of the word simply being translated to gathering or assembly or congregation, a German word was stuck into our English text, a German word that meant house of the Lord. But Jesus didn't come to establish a place. To the contrary, Jesus came to establish a brand new movement of people that was for all people, all ethnic groups, all nations, all generations, forever and forever. A a movement where love would replace law-keeping, where self-sacrifice would replace... So, real quick, I do want to... What he's getting at here is John chapter 13 verse 31 through 35. So let's read that real quick, because I don't know, maybe he'll get to it. And if he does, great. If he doesn't, at least we've read it, because I want to make sure that we don't use Andy's version of what Jesus said. We actually use what the scripture said. So again, John uh, chapter 13, starting at verse 31, it says this, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him and God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So uh, this is, uh, I'm assuming this is what he's getting at. This was the wording he sort of used. It was this new commandment that Jesus gives his disciples, which is to love one another as he has loved them. And then Jesus says that the implication of loving one another as he has loved them is that people will know that they are from Jesus. So just so we're very clear on that, 
It is not, what does love require of you? Because this is what Andy said that Jesus was getting at. What does love require of you? That is not quite what Jesus is saying here. He said, you are to love one another just as I have loved you. Now, we could do some study here. Again, I haven't got into the study, but this looks as, I mean, Jesus' words here is, you love one another as I have loved you. And then when people see you loving one another, they're going to know that you are my disciples because of the way you act toward one another. So just so we're clear about the wording and what's going on here. Now, hopefully he'll reference some scripture. And if it's not this scripture, then I will be corrected. But if not, this is seems to be what he's talking about with the new commandment that Jesus gives. So that being said, uh, let's, let's hop back in animal sacrifice, where the vertical, the vertical would be measured by the integrity of the horizontal. Jesus would say to his followers, if you are at the temple and you have something that's wrong between you and God, but you recognize that you also have something wrong between you and your brother, God can wait. Go make things right with your brother. This was unheard of because this was something brand new. The apostle Paul came along after Jesus. The apostle Paul was a product of the temple. The apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. The apostle Paul steps onto the pages of history as someone committed to stamping out the church. He was a type A personality. He took things to the extreme and he didn't wait around for everybody else to join him. And on the road to Damascus, some more Christians, he met the one who instigated the church, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and the apostle Paul became a convert to Christianity, a spokesperson for Christianity. And he, more than anyone else, understood this, that you dare not mix the old with the new. Because a little bit of temple thinking, a little bit of temple model thinking mixed with this new thing, this new ecclesia, this new Jesus movement would have the potential to ruin it. A little bit of the wrong thing could impact the entire. Now, without um, giving some sort of scriptural backing here, that doesn't seem to be. I mean, Paul speaks often about Jesus being the fulfillment of all of these things. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus himself says that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and Moses. So, I mean, Paul, when he's talking about the law, He's, he's, he always talks about how the law doesn't save you, but it, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So to say that you can't mix them, it seems like that's a misunderstanding of Paul. Paul's not saying don't mix the things. He's saying that the old covenant doesn't save you. Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant. I mean, it's the... It's a theme throughout Paul's epistles, which is really strange, which is why, for example, when he's contending with the Judaizers, he talks about how circumcision doesn't save you, but the circumcision of the heart does. And then when he speaks of Jesus, he always speaks of Jesus being a fulfillment of the Old Testament law. Paul was clearly very acute uh, to the Old Testament law. He knew it. He taught it. And then when he converts and he sees Jesus, um, he sees that Jesus is a fulfillment of all of the things that are from the Old Testament. So this is an odd comment from Andy. Higher thing. And in his, in his letter to the Galatians, to this, this Roman area that we call Galatia, he wrote a verse last week that we camped out on that is unthinkable in terms of the implications. Here's what he said. He said, the only thing that counts, now this is a Hebrew scholar, this is someone that had memorized the Torah. 
The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love, specifically love towards other people. This was a brand new thing. In the South, we would say it's a whole nother thing. And he didn't stop there. The Apostle Paul said something that if you grew up in church, you've heard a dozen or hundreds of times. He said this, and again, for people who, he wrote this, this was in a letter to the um, Christians who lived in Corinth. They were both Jewish and Gentile. The Jewish um, believers in Corinth would from time to time make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go up on the temple mount in order to worship there on the mountain of God. The pagan Gentiles who were become, becoming Christians would simply go down the street to their temples to worship their pagan gods as they tried to figure out how to transition from paganism to Christianity. And to that group, the apostle Paul had the audacity to write. He said, do you not know that your bodies are temples? What? Your bodies are temples? Wait, no, a temple is a place I go. Paul said that was the old way of thinking. That was the old version. That was the temple model. Jesus has dumped some, done something. So Paul is referring to their bodies as temples for the Holy Spirit, using their understanding of the temples that were around them to demonstrate how God fills your body as uh, he used to fill the temple. Like I, Andy has a very strange hermeneutic in this regard to me. Like I, I, I don't claim to be the smartest person in the world, but he seems to be very intent on separating the Old Testament from the New. He seems very intent of disconnecting the two, which if I, I may be incorrect, but I think this is the series in which, uh, or um, I could be wrong. I, I totally could be wrong. This may be the series in which he talked about the him hitching the Old Testament from the New. And if it was, this line of thought makes an, uh, a whole lot more sense because he seems to be intent on separating the Old Testament from the New Testament and there being like this clean cut differentiation between the two in which you leave the old behind because Jesus has made this new thing. That ignores a lot of church history, though, in which the new believers, the converts to Christianity, were taught the Old Testament to show them that Jesus was the fulfillment of that Old Testament. That, um, I mean, th this what that was their scriptures, was the Torah. Not that they were Jewish, they weren't conver converting to Judaism, but this is how they were taught. Like, who is this Jesus that you claim to be the Son of God? Well, let me show you within the Old Testament that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and what we see. I mean, this disconnection seems to ignore a ton of church history, um, which surely Andy knows. Maybe he, I, the only thing I can think is he's coming at this from a totally different perspective that discounts or ignores that. I don't, I don't know. It's very confusing to me. I don't get it. Let's keep going. Entirely new. You are as sacred as any piece of dirt you have ever placed your foot on. You will never go anywhere more sacred than you are or the person to your left or to your right. You are a portable temple. How can I be a portable temple? He said, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit to which the Jews would say, wait a minute. No, the spirit of God indwells the holy of holies. Paul would say that was the old way. The new covenant has come. The holy of holies is of no significance anymore. It played its role. It was the cocoon that birthed this brand new movement. And you are as holy as the holy of holies. You are a portable temple and you are indwelt by the very same spirit of God. 
that indwelt the temple in Jerusalem. And the Christian to your left and the Christian to your right, the slave to your left, the slave owner to your right, the man in front of you, the woman behind you, the child that's running in your directions, they too are sacred in the eyes of God. This was mind-boggling, mind-blowing, brand new, nothing about the old, moving into the new. And what's so fascinating is that the, the church got off to an extraordinary, an extraordinary start. One of the things I love to do, because I'm so, such a geek about this, is I love to read the ancient literature of what pagans said about the Christians. And there's so much of that literature around. They watched the Christians and they couldn't understand the Christians because the Christians would go out into the streets and take the children that had been abandoned. Because in Roman culture, if the child wasn't healthy, if it was a girl, children were abandoned all the time. And the children would bring, the, the Christians would bring the children in. The Christians would not only take care of their own poor, they would take care of the poor Gentiles and pagans as well. And the, the pagan Roman Greek thinking culture just couldn't, you know, they just couldn't contain the thought, couldn't imagine that these people would actually one another one another that they would actually love one another. They would actually care for one another. They would forgive one another. But the thing that really got the world's attention is that Christians were not afraid of death because they served a resurrected savior. And again, the Christian community began to gain traction. They had no Bible. The Gentile Christians didn't even have an Old Testament. All they had were stories of Jesus. And then 25 years or so. The Gentile Christians didn't even have an Old Testament. Testament. I wonder what he means by that. I mean, we have the Torah. We have the Septuagint. I mean, the Septuagint is what um, it's Jesus and the apostles quote. So they had Old Testament. Now, everything he says up before that point is good. I mean, he's right. There, there's documentation to demonstrate that the Christians were incredibly generous. They saved abandoned children. Um, like all of what he said as far as generosity and caring for one another and saving abandoned children and like that drawing attention um, is, is correct. We have literature for that. But we also, to say the Gentile Christians didn't have an Old Testament seems incredibly odd because they did. They're, they're, it was available. Um, so that's strange. They, they did have the teachings of Jesus, though, as well. I mean, this is why we have the, we have the apostles going out writing and teaching as well. We have, obviously, he's mentioned Paul going out and teaching uh, as well. That's a curious statement, though. I would be curious uh, citations for that because, it, I mean, it's not like they were as readily available as the scriptures are to us, but it's not as if the Gentile Christians didn't have access to an Old Testament. Um, now, again, to be fair... Literacy was not even close to as high as it is now. The availability was not as near as close as high as it is now. So there are there are limitations to be able to access these things, but it's not like they were unavailable. Um, that's strange. But I am glad that he at least notes and shows that he does have. Um, uh, that he knows and has read ancient literature as far as the early church goes. He does seem to reference the scripture I, I talked about as far as first, uh, as far as John chapter 13, uh, starting at verse, I think it was 31, because one another, one another, what he just said, uh, seems to tie back to that scripture that I read, that you should love one another. Um, so that seems to be the premise of the main text that he's reading off of. Uh, I don't know. I'm still hoping that we'll read a text specifically, but he has referenced a few. 
Um, okay. Yeah, let's, let's keep going. So after Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Paul's letters begin to circulate through the churches, but they only had copies. They only had this one and that one. There was no literature. There was no canon. There was just an extraordinary faith that was fueled by love one another. If you forget everything else, you are a portable temple gathered with other portable temples, and you put the person next to you ahead of yourself. And the church gained traction. And then something extraordinary happened. In AD 70, the Jewish temple was actually destroyed and ancient, ancient Judaism came to an end. It was as if God had physically in the world punctuated the fact that the temple model is no more. Its purposes have been served. That they pointed toward the Messiah. They pointed toward Jesus. And Jesus himself said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And the entire law can be summed up in two rules. Love God and demonstrate your love for God by your love for other people. And it was extraordinary. And people who had nothing in common found that in Christ they had everything in common. And then something else extraordinary happened. On October the 28th, in the year 312, Emperor Constantine was on his way to do battle. Okay, so he's going to get to Constantine here in a minute, but the other verse he seems to be referencing is Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, which it says, love the Lord your God. Um, well, actually, let me pull up Mark chapter 12. Let me pull that up real quick, because uh, I want to make sure I have... Um, the full context of this verse. So let's get down to that. Excuse me real quick while I get to it. Um, the great commandment, right? So this is Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked, Which is the greatest com greatest um which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, interesting that he mixes this without referencing it because the one he references is in John. He's talking to his disciples and telling them to love one another as he has loved them. And then outsiders will look in and see that and connect their love for one another to the teachings of Christ. This one in Mark is him answering a, a scribe, which is a, a law keeper, a, a distinguisher of the, the Jewish law in, in Judaism. And that scribe is asking Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? So Jesus is answering a Jew with the, the, what is the greatest commandment within Judaism, essentially, is what the scribe is asking. And Jesus gives, uh, you know, he, he references the Old Testament, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love him, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then the second is love your neighbor as yourself. So he's communicating something, ironically, from the Old Testament that is an important thing to keep now. So that uh, don't, and this, this is why not just, this is not just Andy, but this is why pastors, I would just so encourage you to open the scriptures within context and teach the scriptures within context. 
show what happened before, show what happened after, explain what's happening behind it, explain what a scribe is, why the scribe asking. Why does the scribe even find this important? It's a Jewish, it, 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 the scribes are like Jewish lawyers, essentially law keepers. They are the ones that determine, like if somebody has a question, they say, well, what would the law, what would the Torah say to do about this? So when the scribe comes to Jesus and asks him, what's the greatest commandment? The exact answer that this scribe is looking for is, is for Jesus to say something out of the Torah, which Jesus he 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 repeats the the um, the quotes from the Torah, and this this is what the scribe was looking for. So Jesus' thing is love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and all your strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. This is distinctively different than what we see Jesus and John doing when he's talking specifically to his disciples. But you wouldn't know that because Andy hasn't made that distinction. So now the the love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength seems to be intertwined with love each other as I have loved you. And it's not that they're necessarily disconnected, but they are set in two separate settings, two, di two different sets of people for two separate reasons. And that is important to note. Not that it necessarily changes a ton, but you now understand that when I'm told to love one another as you have loved me so that outsiders can look at the love we have for one another and say that must be a follower of Christ, that is different than the religious leader coming to Jesus and saying, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus referencing the command given back in the Torah. Because what he's saying is this is what God says, these, this is what God says we should do with one another. We should love him with everything. And then because we love him with everything, we love our neighbor as our self. These are two different things that you would not be able to distinguish because Andy hasn't made that distinction within the sermon. Now, he is skipping a ton <laughs> between Jesus and getting up to Constantine. But let's see where he takes this. With his co-emperor, Maxentius to find out who would be the supreme ruler of the Roman Empire. And as history tells us, and as many of you learned in, in school at some point in your life, on his way in the middle of the day, he had a vision of a cross in the sky beyond the sun. Some say he heard a voice. Some say he simply saw an inscription. But he either heard or he read this. In this sign, conquer. And he stopped and he painted crosses on some of the shields of some of his soldiers. He went to battle and he was victorious. And the Christians hailed him as a conqueror. And suddenly his faith expanded and suddenly he began to consider the one true God of the Christians. And suddenly the Christians began to gain status in the kingdom. And in, and in, in this victory, and then the, there's all this artwork that you can find everywhere. In this, in this victory celebration, suddenly the cross became a symbol, not of crucifixion in general. The cross became a symbol of the Christian crucifixion uh, or the crucifixion of Jesus. And what was birthed, even though the phrase wouldn't be used until the 12th or 13th century, was what we now know as the Holy Roman Empire. The problem was, of course, that it was far more Roman and far more empire than it was holy. A year later, Constantine legalized... So we are using it in a really broad brush here in church history. Now, obviously, I don't have time to dissect that here, um, but there are a couple of channels or books that I would highly suggest. I will link those in the description below. 
One of the top references would be Nick Needham's book, 2,000 Years of Christ Power. It's a five-volume set. The first volume will cover a lot of this. Um, Ryan Reeves has a YouTube channel as well that covers a ton of early church history in a lot of very easily accessible detail. I would highly suggest that. Also, um, Nick from Christ is the Cure has an entire podcast series on the Nicene Creed specifically um, that will touch briefly on a little bit of this history as far as Constantine is concerned um, during this time. All three of those resources are more than worth your time in actually accessing church history that is um, easily easy to understand, accurate, and incredibly helpful to you so that you can you can avoid this broad brush sort of history because this this isn't helpful because you are missing a lot of the details that are very necessary for you to understand the development of Christianity within the first, second, third, fourth century. Okay, I, I can't overemphasize that. Um, because if you get some of that wrong or misunderstand some of this, it leads to really bad history, first off, but just bad theology in general and a bad understanding of your, your Christian history that you've inherited. So those three resources, I would suggest you view. I, in fact, if any pastor mentions church history, those three things are going to be a really good resource to sort of verify that history with. There's a lot more, but those three will get you started. Nick from Christ is the Cure and Ryan Reeves are free to you. You can get either one of those. are very accessible, very helpful. Uh, I would suggest every Christian buy the book. Uh, or at least the first volume of Nick Needham series, um, because that's helpful. All five, um, I don't know if they're all out yet, but I know volume one is incredibly helpful. Um, so pick that up. So free commercial there for that stuff, but it's going to be way more helpful than what you're, what you're getting here. As you know, he legalized Christianity. When he did so, he poured, he poured so much money into the church. He elevated the status of the bishops and the priests. He began to build churches anywhere he heard there a martyr had died. Suddenly, he was a collector of relics. Everything he did was about elevating Christianity. He built churches. Churches didn't have to pay any taxes. So guess what? All the rich people began to dedicate their properties and their manors and their houses to God so they didn't have to pay any taxes. And the rich got richer and the rich people became Christians because it paid to follow Jesus and under the leadership of Constantine. The other thing he did was he banned crucifixion. He, he gave rights to children. He actually donated money to families that would take in orphans and children. And seemingly and almost overnight, Christianity went from being a persecuted minority to an empowered majority. But the problem was, and this was no one's intent, this was no grand plan. The problem was suddenly, suddenly, Christianity became inseparable from empire. And the church leaders created their own version of the temple model with a little bit of Christianity sprinkled in. Now there would be new sacred places. There would be a whole new group of sacred people that began to uh, intentionally collect all the Christian text, bind them together, chain them to the altar, and now they would determine what was taught, what wasn't taught, and how the text would be interpreted. 
This is no better understood than through... Okay, so I don't know what he's about to say, but that is incredibly interesting to see his perspective on the Bible in regards to this is now they're trying to gatekeep who can get in based upon the text that they've collected. Now, again, this is a broad, broad, broad brush of how the canon was made. I mean, he skipped a lot of history there. Um, but it is revealing to to see sort of his perception on the canon and on the church. Um, if he would, well, I don't know. I'll, I'll hold off on that comment. We'll see what else he says here. Let's let's keep going. Perhaps something you heard about in school that's known as the Arian controversy. This was a theological controversy. The only reason I'm going to tell you about it is because of where it leads that we'll get to in just a minute. But the Arian controversy was over the word begotten. It was over the question that I'm sure many of you wrestle with just about every day. Did Jesus become God after he was born, or was he born God? Isn't this something that you talk about over dinner? Why do but they this was a really, really big day. deal in the fourth century. And a, and a Christian, a, a church leader from Alexandria named Arius actually believed that the Jesus' divinity was conferred on him as an adult, as some sort of a reward for his faithfulness to God. Most of the church leaders, especially Athanasius, who led the charge against um, Arius, believed that, no, Jesus was born divine. So Constantine didn't want there to be a division in this new Christian, this new holy empire, and so he called a council meeting. In fact, he hosted the meeting, paid for it himself, which meant everybody was going to be kind and polite to the emperor. As a result of that, Athanasius was the first one to Constantine, and Constantine was no theologian. He was a king. In fact, he did everything that a king would do and everything an emperor would do, so much so that even though he claimed to be a Christian, he waited to be baptized on his deathbed just to make sure all of his sins were covered right up to the last minute. Because again, he was more emperor than he was Holy Roman Emperor. So there was, this, there was this debate, this debate, and as a result, and night, and as a result we, we've known, you've heard about the, the Nicene Creed that came out about as a result of that. And Athanasius, who, who argued persuasively that Jesus was born divine, won the debate. But after the debate, people didn't go away friends and say, well, you believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe. Suddenly, this was a political issue. This was a financial issue. This was a big issue. No, 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 no. Wait, this is not a political issue or a financial issue. This is a, theo a core theological issue. This informs the very teaching of who Jesus... So you have councils that come together and no one disputed Jesus' divinity. They were trying to figure out how that divinity worked out, right? So in that particular one that Andy has mentioned, it was, did Jesus, was Jesus born divine or did, it was divinity imparted to him? How did that work? All right. This is not some secondary, we can just, we can agree to disagree sort of situation because it affects a ton of theology. Um, Marcy from uh, Provoke to Proclaim has a, a lot of posts on her Instagram account that kind of works through a lot of these heresies and why understanding the heresy matters because it affects theology. Because theology, whether you would like to want to use this word or not, it, it's, the, it's the understanding of salvation and how God interacts with his people and how, what that means and how that, why that matters. So I hopefully Andy talks about it being a theological issue, but if he doesn't, and he's making it, he's saying this is a, a 
he's basically saying this is a political financial issue and everything that sort of comes from these things are polit political and financial as well. I mean, he made the comment that um, Constantine paid for it. So everybody was going to be nice to him. These bishops that come to Nicaea or to, to, to the council have some of them historically bear the marks of persecution on their own body. I don't think they give two flying flips about what the emperor thinks about their belief system. Now, surely they're happy that they're not getting their life threatened anymore over following Jesus. But if you think that people ha that have already been persecuted and lost friends because of their belief in Jesus are going to capitulate to an emperor simply because he pays for a council, you are way off the deep end on that. They don't care. There's no indication within the writings of the early church of some that these men were going to capitulate simply because the emperor was paying for something when they had already lost people and been threatened themselves. They were going to give up Jesus. They would have given up Jesus a long time before this happened. This is just blatantly incorrect. There, there's enough truth in what he's saying here historically that um, you can skim by. But some of these finer points that he's making is absolutely incorrect based on... Look, I'm not a historian, but I've read a lot and I, I, I have referenced and asked a lot of uh, Christian historians quite a few questions and nothing that I have heard or gotten back is lining up with what he's saying right here. So somebody's wrong is all I'm saying. That's all I, either him or the people that I've asked. Somebody's incorrect here. So let's let him keep talking, see where we get. Issue. And so Emperor Constantine, again, who was no theologian, put out this edict. And I want to read just this part to, to you because this explains so much in some ways of what we experience even today. Here's what he wrote. He said, and I hereby make a public, this is the end of the edict, I hereby make a public order that if someone should be discovered to have hidden a writing composed by Arius and not to have immediately brought it forward and destroyed it by fire, his penalty shall be death. And now theological division was heresy that was punishable by death. Suddenly believing the wrong thing was a crime. And suddenly in Christianity, what? I, okay, look, oh my goodness. Guys, I'm not saying you should straight up merc somebody over uh, being a heretic, okay? I get it. Like, not probably the best move based upon a changed heart and mind in Jesus. But to say that heresy's not a big deal I mean, that's what he's basically saying, that, that these aren't theological matters. They're political and economic ones, and you can't just, like, why, why don't you just, like, let the heretic believe what the heretic believes and keep teaching it, is basically what he's saying here. Look, the clip I made for the meme has nothing on all of this nonsense that we're, we're, we're listening to. Let's, let's see where else he goes. What you believed trumped how you behave. Christianity almost immediately became creedal. You're familiar with the Apostles' Creed, or maybe you memorized a different creed as a child. The Apostles' Creed is an This is the clip right here. This is the clip that I'm, I, I, I used in the meme, this creedal thing. Extraordinary piece of theology that, that states so many things that are so important to theology and to Christendom. The problem with that creed, along with other creeds, is there is no mention of love. 
In fact, there's no mention of behavior at all. You could subscribe to that creed and basically do anything you wanted. And there was a reason the creeds were that way is because the creeds were generally signed off on by the emperor, and the emperors had bad behaviors. So the church leaders who were being funded by the emperors had to be very careful what they put into the Christians, Christian creeds. And consequently, during this period in history, in fact, during all of history, no one was ever arrested, no one was ever persecuted, and no one was ever executed because they loved too much. It was all about what they did and didn't believe. And now you had Christians arresting Christians for believing the wrong thing. And suddenly... Okay, so when you put it like that, of course it sounds a little weird or petty, right? Now, what you... What, what's important to understand here, aside from the fact that what he said about the creeds being developed and all of that is just incorrect, um, is that the teaching proper theology as as pertained to scripture right so this is something he doesn't mention the reason that these councils were held, speci held specifically this nicene one right is for the for the purpose uh well there's always usually like a main thing but then there's sub theological in issues underneath as well but they bring forth their case based on scripture and then the argument is made and the discussion had, what does scripture have to say about this claim that is being made? Is it, can it be held up by scripture or is it not held up by scripture and the teachings of the apostles? And what we see is that there is, there's a decision made, not only on this, but on a number of different things through various different creeds and different discussions had at these different councils, that there are things that are that are orthodox, as in they are in line with scripture, and then there are things that are not in line with scripture. Now, some of these have huge pervasive impacts on theology, and some don't. This is why I would encourage you to go check out Marcy's page, Pro Provoke to Proclaim on Instagram, because these posts that she makes that are about uh, the heresies that have occurred in early church history throughout church history are important because you'll be able to see she does an excellent job of dissecting like you know why it's important, who said it, where's the refutation, why does that matter, why was it decided this way, and what effect and application does that have? Because this matters. You can't just say, oh, well, you disagreed, and now he's painting it as if you disagreed with someone, so now you lock them up because you think you're right and you think they're wrong, and therefore you take the moral high ground because you've been, you know, you side with the power of the empire, some nonsense. Theology matters. Theology simply means the way it is the, the outpoint of how God interacts with his people and what the implications of that are, right? Now, again, there are some not biblical results that men uh, have done throughout history, humanity has done throughout history, that aren't in line with how we should have done them, right? So burning heretics at the stake is not necessarily the way clearly that we see Scripture would have, like Jesus would have taught to handle this, right? Killing other people, you know, murdering is not quite the awesome outcome uh, or the desired outcome of how this should work. But that does not mean that you don't refute heresy and say this is incorrect teaching according to the scriptures, because this does affect theological th thinking and understanding of how us and God interact 
downstream that affects how that occurs, right? And the reason the council was convened, he's he's almost correct in that reasoning, but the emperors saw, especially in this case Constantine, saw that these divisions of individuals, Christianity had grown so much, even in spite of persecution, mind you, not just because Constantine was like, hey, green stamp, now there's a bunch of Christians. Christianity had expanded a lot before that point, and there was division on theological issues. And instead of it tearing the empire apart, because these Christians are a part of the empire, they're living in the empire, they're under the rule of the emperor, and instead of having a divided empire, we need to decide what's correct here, because apparently it's a big enough deal that you guys are fighting over it, you're separating over it, so let's figure it out. And so they have the discussion, they look at it via scripture, and they make the decision. And this is how we come up with orthodox belief throughout time within Christianity. Yes, there are schisms. Yes, there are differences. Yes, there are breakoffs. We did an interview with a PhD student in England about that. I'll try to remember to link that video below as well. There's going to be a lot of links, just deal with it. But he talks about those schisms and what causes some of those schisms. The point is it happens, but there's a reason it happens. And that isn't some like, oh, well, it just sort of occurred, just agree to disagree reasoning. These have wide implications. Anyway, let's, oh, let's keep going. You had the church version, the Christian version of the temple model. Sacred men, sacred men, this new, this new group of sacred men now became the gatekeepers of heaven and hell through withholding communion, through withholding baptism. With the Look guys, I don't like interrupting every five seconds, but you, if you misunderstand the importance of communion and baptism, baptism is being baptized into the community of believers, into the church. In fact, the Apostles' Creed was a baptismal creed. You cannot be baptized into the Christian church. This is, by the way, before Constantine. You cannot be baptized into the Christian church without reciting at least a version of the Apostles' Creed. There's a lot to that backstory. Uh, hope to be doing an Apostles' Creed mini-series on this channel here soon. Just got to get to it. But there's a lot to that. But you would be baptized after repeating the Apostles' Creed and saying, I refute the works of Satan and the devil. And the idea is that I am being baptized into Christ, into the church, into this community of believers. And taking the sacrament, taking communion was a, a visual representation that I am in a right relationship with God and those that I am in community with. So that if, example, communion would be held from you, you, you would not be able to take communion if you were an open, unrepentant sin. Why? Because if you're an open, unrepentant sin and you haven't uh, uh, repented via the, the mode of church discipline and that sin being brought to you and you having the opportunity to repent from it, then you're not part of this community and you therefore you are not able to take communion. The fact that Andy's able to say this demonstrates that we don't understand historical baptism or historical communion or just church history in general. And this is where I think as believers, as pastors, we need to teach on this so that when subjects like this are brought up, we're not ignorant to the fact that this isn't just some dispute in which we're making, picking fights for no reason. These are big theological issues that have implications that are important. Anyway, let's, let's keep going. The threat of excommunication. Suddenly, the Pope, the priest, the bishops, and the archbishops were the power. 
The kings and the lords and the landowners feared the pope and the priest and the bishops. And then in the 11th century, as you know, the first successful crusade was launched. And Pope Urban II... I, I, I will legitimately try not to break in every two minutes, I promise you. But we, you have to understand, we just jumped from the, the 3rd and 4th century to the 12th. We just, we're just not going to talk about all of that. Anyway. Launched this crusade with the promise that all the crusaders' sins would be forgiven. He promised the remission of sins. And so these landowners and these, these um, knights who had lots and lots of sins to be forgiven charged off to do the first crusade, and they raped and pillaged their way all the way through Europe, all the way to Constantinople, all the way to the Holy Land, because after all, their sins were forgiven. But something else happened as well. It occurred to them, if we have permission to kill those who inhabit the sacred Holy Land and the city of Jerusalem, why not murder those who are actually responsible for the death of our Lord? And Jewish men and women and families and children were murdered throughout Europe. The spirit of anti-Semitism went to a level it had never been before in all of the world. Their, their wealth was stolen and taken by men on their way to do the will of God. Because after all, as the Pope said, God wills it. God wills it. God wills it. And God so this is where it is very important to... I, what Andy's doing here is acknowledging where theology and... Um, where, where men twist theology for their own means. And so here he's right. But again, Ryan Reeves, I would highly suggest Ryan Reeves' YouTube channel. He covers a lot of this and demonstrates how um, things like the crusade and things like the twisting of scripture for, for one's own gain happens um, and demonstrates it by actual history, not just being like, hey, there was a crusade and it was terrible. Like actually telling you the things that led up to these sorts of things. Um, he's a great resource for that. Again, free on YouTube, link in the description below. But it's important to acknowledge, again, you two things can be right at the same time here. One, we can acknowledge that, um, we, we can acknowledge that, um, there are terrible things that have been done in the name of Christ while also acknowledging that there is a correct theology based upon scripture. These are not mutually like the, the they don't have to be um, tied together because Andy's reasoning here as he's preached through this sermon thus far, and we're only um, we're 21 minutes into 39 minute sermon. Um, his reasoning that he just did, was that um, Constantine happened, the church became uh, sort of like tied to the state and the bishops and the pastors did the duty, did the, you know, the will of the emperor because he paid them. And then we got the Bible and then they became the gatekeepers. And because they became the gatekeepers, they could tell you how to get into heaven and hell um, and then, you know, manipulate you that way. And then he jumps to the crusades and then ties all of that to the crusades. Um, now again, there, there is so much here that he's not acknowledging in regards to how sacred text uh, of all different religions can be hijacked. But specifically, if we're talking about this within Christianity, about how the scriptures themselves condemn what he's talking about, like the church doing, right? 
I don't think nobody I know is like, oh, the emperor was right. Like, oh, yeah, that crusade, that was a great idea. Like, nobody says that, right? They acknowledge the thing that Andy is saying is that people that were in power, the men, the popes that were in power, were evil and manipulating the scriptures for their own end. That does not, though, mean that the scriptures are evil and shouldn't be used to teach right doctrine. But that's the connection that's very loosely, seemingly being made here, which is ridiculous. Ridiculous it is. Anyway. Oh, boy. Let's keep going, guys. Let's go. God must have willed it because when they got to Jerusalem, they were successful and they retook the city. But 100 years later, God did not will it. And Saladin took it back. And the crusaders never controlled the city of Jerusalem in the way that they did from the first crusade. And suddenly, suddenly, the temple model was back. It was just the Christian version. Sacred places, sacred men who controlled the sacred text because no one had access to the Bible. It would be interpreted the way they thought it should be interpreted. And all of a sudden, this, this movement that was to be fueled by love for one another, to be fueled by one anothering one another, almost came to a screeching halt, except for the monastic movement and some remnant of people who understood what the Jesus movement was really all about. The next big date in, this, in our story is the year 1517, which marked the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther and others, they weren't trying to abandon the church. They just wanted to reform the church, thus the word reformation. But those inside the church felt like they were protesting, thus the word Protestant. And so Martin Luther condemned the selling of indulgences. Martin Luther, who was a Greek scholar, understood none of what the church stands for can be found anywhere in the Gospels. Certainly their version of salvation can't be found in the Gospels. Certainly the idea that a pope or an archbishop or a bishop can control who goes into purgatory and how long they stay there, none of that can be found in the Gospels. And so they began trying to reform the church. Consequently, as you probably know, Martin Luther was excommunicated, but he didn't care because he didn't believe the Pope had the power to excommunicate anyone. And within the context of the Reformation, there were several solas that came to light. The most popular one was sola fide, which simply means, as many of you know, by faith alone. And this became, became the hallmark of Protestantism, that we believe that salvation is not by works, but by faith alone. And so Martin Luther and others began to teach this. The printing press had been created. Suddenly, Okay, one real quick thing that was very subtle there, but is very interesting, is that Andy makes the connection that Martin Luther, uh, in, in an effort to reform the church, because he did see the evils of the church that we previously talked about, and the misuse of scripture, um, gets excommunicated. But he didn't care. Now, not five, ten minutes ago, Andy was talking about how... Um, people with wrong theology were excommunicated or, or, or killed because they believed the wrong thing. And there seems to be a very subtle connection here that, um, and we'll be interested to see where Sole Fide goes here in a minute, where Martin Luther didn't care that the church didn't agree with him because he knew what the scripture said. And he seems to be saying, which will be very interesting, that um, this is what I'm predicting, is that he's going to say that the councils and creeds aren't necessarily important because um, they set up sort of this gatekeeping model in regards to theology um, 
and when you get excommunicated or or sent out from the church, it shouldn't really matter because they're gatekeeping different theological concepts. That's my take. That's where I'm, I think he's going to go with this because it's, it's a very interesting connection that he draws here. Um, draws here with Luther in regards to getting excommunicated, even though what Luther was protesting wasn't anything within the councils that had been said. He was protesting the things that we see a lot within the Apocrypha, which is the selling of the indulgences, purgatory, things like that, um, that weren't canon, uh, but were being used to dictate a lot of, um, a lot of uh, church belief system. All right, let's get back to Andy. The scriptures were being translated into English for which William Tyndale lost his life for making the text available to people in his nation and his part of the world. The same with Martin Luther as he began to translate the Bible into Germany. He was hunted down like a criminal for making the text available, for making the Bible available to those in his, in his part of the world. The other sola that the Reformation gave us was sola scriptura. Because the reformers believed, like many of us believe, that the scripture, not the church, the scripture, not the church, was the ultimate authority for mankind. This is why they were so adamant about making copies of scripture and getting them into the hands of the people. Of course, this was a threat to the church because suddenly if everyone had the scripture and no one took the church and the traditions of the churches seriously, they would lose their power. Martin Luther said this, he said, a man, a simple layman armed with scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. And without meaning to, and without understanding where this would go, suddenly in the hands of the reformers, suddenly in the hands of the Protestant church leaders, the scriptures became the very same thing that papal authority was before. It became a weapon. The reformers were armed with the scriptures, and they did exactly what the church had done before. And consequently, the Reformation splintered into three, six, a dozen, dozens, and now there are over a thousand Protestant denominations all over the world. And do you know what divided them? Because some loved better than others? Because some loved differently than others? No, it was their interpretation of a text. Because now you had more sacred places with sacred men, with sacred texts. This is where, okay, so this is why creeds and councils are important to clarify interpretation of different texts and to bring it all back to the text and actually have really good discussions on it. So yes, while the Roman church the, w was definitely what Martin Luther and the reformers sought to be, which was uh, abusing the scripture in a way that was unhelpful. And the reason he wanted to reform it, as Andy has said, is because he saw the wrongs in it. But the interesting things that Andy doesn't say is that he also saw the good of it. He saw the good purpose of the church as a community of believers. And if done correctly, if, 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 if ran as scripture said that the community of believers should be ran. I mean, there are, there, there are scriptures talking about how church structure should work, right? If ran correctly, if done scripturally, Martin Luther and the reformers saw that the church was a help to society, a good and helpful thing. What they were reforming was trying to get the abuse of Scripture and the additions to Scripture 
taken care of out of it purgatory for i mean or i think it's one that andy mentioned i forget what the rest were but the idea here being that they were trying to bring them back to the scriptures not that they were trying to eliminate the the big c church universal but rather they were trying to call it back to what the church a community of believers was supposed to be that there, there's just a lot of conflation here within uh, within this sermon that's just not helpful, and it's actually very confusing because by Andy's own definition here, he shouldn't even be doing what he's doing in front of people because he has power over other individuals and to tell them and to dictate what they do, even though, to his credit, uh, he's not reading scripture to them, so it's not like he's, he's teaching them anything. But let, let's get back here and see exactly how he sort of wraps this up in the last 10 minutes telling everyone else how to live their lives and specifically what would grant them entrance into heaven, what would keep them out of hell. And Protestants have been beating people over the head with the Bible ever since. And the tragedy of all of this, even though if we had lived in those times, no doubt we would have been caught up in the same ways of thinking, in the same conflict, in the same division, at the end of the day, the tragedy was that love lost. Love lost. And we simply ended up with two or three or a half a dozen different versions of the temple model with Jesus sprinkled in. Now, this next part of the sermon, I'm totally making up because I don't know if this happened. <laughs> but I imagine... That at some point in all of this chaos, and, and we just went really fast through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, okay? I, I would imagine that at some point Jesus and the apostle Paul stood at the railing of heaven and looked down and went, how did this happen? And Jesus turned to the apostle Paul and said, I don't know how I could have been any clearer. I got them all together right at the end. I washed their stinking feet. And I told him, this is an example. This is what you are to do for one another, okay? And then I looked him right in the eye and I said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. How in the world did it come to this? The apostle Paul said, well, no offense, Jesus, but I actually wrote mine down, <laughs> sent it out. Had copies made. You know what I told him? I said, you know, Jesus, I mean, that was good what you said, but what could be clearer than this? The only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And Peter walks up. He says, Jesus, I'm really embarrassed. I mean, you got a garden tomb. Have you seen what they built over the place where I'm buried? <laughs> they built a temple over my burial site. And Jesus, I'm telling you, I wrote it down too. I said this, I said, have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Okay, so first of all, um, I think it's, it's more than problematic when you make up stupid um, stories of possible exaggerated conversations of Jesus and people in heaven. Um, I get why he's doing it. He's trying to find a way to interject this scripture into this, but he's conflating a point here. Um, the point being that people will always misuse the scripture for their own ends. That does not 
in and of itself mean that the scriptures um, are, are, are the, how do I say this in a way, I guess that makes sense. Andy is talking about how the temple model has just been recreated over and over again with sacred men and sacred texts and sacred places. We have been given uh, the words of Jesus because Jesus tells his apostles uh, at the Great Commission to go out and teach them as I have taught you, right? Um, baptizing them and uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They go out, teach Jesus' words to believers. These accounts of Jesus' life get written down. Then we have, obviously, the apostles. We have James. Uh, we have Jude. We have uh uh, Paul, write these things down. We have Peter that writes some of this down, letters that we, we now have. And the early church canonizes, again, this is a much longer process than I'm going to get into here, but says these are important for teaching believers how to live the, the, the life that follows Jesus. So the sacred text that he's saying we just recreate in a temple model are text so that believers know when Jesus said, love one another, we actually know what that looks like. Okay. That's important that we have those. The sacred men that Andy is talking about that are just recreated in the temple model are the elders that we see that are outlined in how this, this, how churches should be set up, how local communities of believers should have some sort of accountability and teach teachers and leadership. We have that laid out, especially a little bit in Peter, but definitely in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, exactly what these men should look like so as to be above reproach and be able to teach well and to understand the scriptures so that when they teach the scriptures, they are taught correctly. What scriptures are they teaching? Well, they're teaching clearly the words of Jesus, but these echo the Old Testament as well. So the sacred books that he's talking about that are recreated in the temple model are necessary, and the early church knew that, which is why they collected them. The sacred men that he's talking about leading these uh, this temple model are the ones that we see set up. Even we have um, the apostles in Jerusalem at the councils. They're, they're there leading for a reason, right? So as to make sure this doesn't go off the rails. Later on down the road, we have the councils of these sacred men that are wrestling through to make sure that this teaching doesn't get distorted and that we understand correctly who the who Jesus is so that the personal work of Jesus don't get distorted and twisted and lead into some incorrect teaching that, that, that doesn't coincide with Scripture. The sacred spaces... Look, to be clear right there, I mean, what we see here is there nobody that I, that within Protestantism, and yes, a little bit within Catholicism, does have some sacred spaces, but these are remembrances of, for the most part, of what happened in the Gospels. Now, again, you can take or leave, depending on your tradition, how important those are to you, but no one's worshiping them like they do in other religions, right? No one's making a Mecca to Rome to, you know, to, to every year or every other year to do a thing that they feel like they have to do, right? Um, so th this is just conflating the point here in an imaginary situation, taking text out of context that he's not preaching on in order to make a point um, that isn't a valid point in the first place. Anyway, there, I've said my piece. Let's let him hopefully get to a pretty close to ending here. So how does that happen? How could something so clear become so complicated? How could the new movement of Jesus with a new command and a new ethic of love that was to serve as the filter for all of their decisions, 
How could something so pure, so grassroots, so one another oriented become so temple? And the reason is, is because there is a little temple model in all of us. And our consciences have been shaped by it. What you fear, what you see as sin, what you think God condemns has been taught to you in such a way and to me in such a way that our conscience have been shaped by it. And consequently, we continue to hold on to things that hold us back and hold the church back. You say, well, Andy, I, I don't know about me. I don't know if I, yeah, you. Let me give you some examples as we close today. Have you ever wondered how close to sin you could get without actually sinning? That's how temple model people think. Because you treat God like he's stupid. It's like, God, I wanna know exactly where the sin is because see, I'm not trying to get close to you, I'm trying to get close to sin. But I don't wanna tick you off, you know? So God, I wanna know exactly, so people ask preachers and people like me all the time, do you think such and such is a sin? And I never answer that question, that's a bad question. Do you think such and such is a sin? Basically, I like to do such and such, but I don't wanna sin, but I wanna know exactly where the line is. How close to sin can I get without ticking God off? If you've ever had that thought, that's temple model thinking. Let me ask you this one. Do you feel guilty or has there ever been a time in your life, maybe you're in a time this time right now, have you ever felt guiltier about missing church, mass or confession than you have about the way you treated someone at work? Have you ever felt guiltier about, oh, I miss church, I miss mass, you know, I miss confession. I felt guilty, but have you ever felt guiltier about any of that than you have about how you treated someone at work? That somehow in your thinking, those things take precedent over how you treat other people. If you've ever... So it's interesting that he mentions master confession. Does, did, does North Point have a lot of Catholics that go there? That just seems like a really odd thing to include in a Protestant church. Because there's not confession in a Protestant church. There's not mass in a Protestant church, clearly. So is there a lot of Catholics that go there? That, that's, just, that's just a very odd thing for him to say, I suppose. Um, also, I'd be interesting to see how he ends this. Because right now, we're sort of ending with a very high moralism. Like, you should be more concerned about how you treat people than your participation in the body. Now, I don't think he's making an and or statement here, but it could be very confused to be an and or statement to where, because we're going to end here just so we're really clear. We're going to end without once opening our Bible. Now, to be fair, he has referenced different verses, but never within their full context and never teaching through them. So we, you could potentially come to this service with no scripture and it not affect you at all, right? So that's one thing. So let's let him end here. What do we got? Um, nine minutes left. So I was off earlier, but we got nine minutes left. Ever had that thought if your conscience is wound up in that kind of thinking and feeling? That is temple model thinking. Here's one that I've gotten so many times over the years that it's sensitive, but I'll just throw it out there anywhere. Anyway, if you have ever feared for the eternal destiny of your child based on whether or not your child was baptized, temple model. Someone convinced you that putting water on the head of your baby or your child would determine where they spent eternity. 
And I understand that as a parent, you fear because no, you don't, no one loves anyone like we love our children. But someone has taught you something that if you were to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially what Jesus says about children, do you know what he says about children? He says, bring them to me, take a good look, and now become one. Temple model thinking. Here's one. When you failed morally, whatever that was, maybe you had an affair, maybe you're in an affair, maybe you had several affairs, or maybe for you it was you're not married or it was before you were married, and you, you define morality any way you want. Today's not the day I'm gonna give you a Bible story on morality, but that time in your life when you would say based on your own you know, filter, based on your own sense of ethics and morality, that time that you failed morally with someone. Here's the question. Were you more concerned about what God would do to you than you were about what you did to the person you sinned with? Because if you were, that's temple thinking. Because in the temple model, the worshiper is always more concerned about themselves. It's both. That, that's the answer. It's both. You should be both concerned about how you have wronged God and how you have wronged the other person. It's, bo- it's, bo- it's both. It's both. It's not one or the other. It's both. Because if you are concerned about how you have wronged God, you will be concerned about how you've wronged the other person. It's both. Both. Than other people. Here's another one. Do you believe there's a ritual? There's, there's some sort of ritual that makes you right with God and removes your responsibility to make restitution to the person that you've hurt or sinned against? Do you believe there's some kind of magic prayer? There's some kind of penance? There's some kind of go there? And if I do that consistently and if I serve and you know, maybe become a scout leader or whatever it is, do you think there's some kind of thing that somehow will make you right with God and remove your responsibility to make things right with someone else? It's temple thinking. How about this one? Do other people's sins elicit feelings of superiority in you or compassion? Do other people's failures, is it sort of like, well, those people, well, those Republicans, well, of course, they're Democrats, of course, they would do that, you know, well, they're liberal, well, they're conservative, well, they're Presbyterian, well, they're Catholic, well, they're Baptists, well, they're pagans, well, you know, they're whatevers. Has, is there ever a moment in time when somehow other people's failings and other people's sins, however you define sin, makes you feel morally superior instead of breaking your heart? That somehow God, you know, it's like Jesus said, you know, the, the Pharisee who stood in the temple and said, God, I'm so glad I'm not like these other people because you hear my prayers and they're disgusting. They're disgusting to you and they're disgusting to me and I hope they don't get, I don't get their cooties, God, because look at me, I'm such a pure moral person. Is there any of that in you? As I know, there is that in me. That's temple model pollution. It's that little bit of the wrong thing that has the potential to pollute and corrupt the entire thing. So here, I think he had a really good opportunity to talk about how, um, which he sort of aims at here, I guess at the end where he's talking about complete the whole thing. I think he had a really good opportunity here and maybe he'll finish with it. I don't know. I stopped him before he could finish his thought, but where you could show how that is connected to the type of things we saw in the Crusades, right? This, this idea of being morally superior and taking the text wrongly. And then, which he has not mentioned, repenting from that type of thinking. 
Oh, yeah. There's something else I want to say, but we'll wait till the end here. I, I want to make sure that he uh, he gets to finish his thought here. Do your beliefs and your theology ever get in the way of your love? That's temple. Do you have views that get in the way of loving an actual you? That's temple model thinking. It's in all of us. Our consciences are bound to it. Imagine if we were free from it. Imagine a world where every single believer in Jesus Christ got up every single day and recognized, God is fine with me. Now I must figure out how to be fine with other people. God is fine with me because of Jesus. Like that, you missed a huge opportunity there, brother. I don't even know if I want to call you brother. I'm not sure. I don't, I'll be honest with you. I don't know. So um, I'm not saying he's not a Christian. I'm just saying that there's some teaching here that's problematic. So I wake up as a believer every day knowing that I am right with God because of Jesus. That's an integral part of this. That's the only part that matters. I am right with God because of Jesus. And I want other people to know Jesus so they can be right with God too. Not, I am right with Jesus, or I am right with God, and I have to find a way to be right with other people. Oh, this, this is like progressive Christianity light right here. I mean, it is. Like, there's progressive Christians that are just like flaunting it out there. Like, we don't need the scripture. It's, un it's not necessary. Your hell is right here on earth. Um, you know, <laughs> like, they're just blatant things like that. He's not, he, he's not outright saying any of that, but he's definitely, he, he definitely seems to be alluding to that. <sighs> like, I thought my clip that I, I made a meme out of was bad. Mm, no. no, there's a lot worse here. People, so they can be fine with my father in heaven. Because I think what fuels the temple model thinking in many of us is simply our failure to truly embrace the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that Jesus died for you. And as much as that's a theological category, and as much as you may have prayed a prayer when you were a child, when this gets to your heart, here's what happens. The idea that Jesus died for you, you will begin to recognize that Jesus is for you. And once you understand that Jesus and his father are unequivocally for you, that there is no measure, there is no sin that puts you outside their love, that, that grace has no measure and grace has no limits. Once you settle into that and that gets to your heart, that becomes the context. That becomes the context and the God, love God has for you and other people becomes the context through which we understand the scriptures. It becomes the context through which we interpret the Old and New Testament. It goes right back to what Jesus said when he said, hey, it's real simple. You love God and you demonstrate your love for God by loving others. That's it. When you aren't sure what to do, you pause and ask, what does love require of you? When you aren't sure what to do, you simply pause and ask, what does love require of you? Because Jesus said, and the apostle Paul said, that the entire law hangs on loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself.
What if that characterized the church? What if that characterized you and me? What if God's love for us and for those around us began to inform our consciences and shape our behaviors? Okay, so here is where I don't disagree with him. <laughs> is that Jesus died for us. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose in defeat of sin and death. Um, and when we are gifted the faith to believe in him, we then have a transformation of a changed heart and a changed mind that enables us to love God and to love those around us. And it changes our behavior toward people. So yes, to what he's saying here, God's love for us and for those around us informs our conscious, uh, our, our consciousness and shapes our behavior a hundred percent, a hundred percent. But that doesn't mean we throw away everything he's talked about before. The gathering of believers is important. The teaching of the word is important. Baptism, communion, those, those sacraments are important. The distinguishings uh, of correct and incorrect theology is important because our love for others around us and our love for God informs our behaviors and conscience. Like, those things come out of a transformed heart and a transformed mind so that we want correct theology based on scripture so that we can uh, explain the scriptures to people and the intricacies and nuances of how, how that works in our lives. Yes, they never, again, the creeds and the, and the councils never usurp scripture right? Scripture is overall, but we have to understand that the things that we see that he's referenced before were driven by, uh, what I mean by before is the councils and like the things that came out of them, were driven by the love for God and what he had said and getting getting scripture right, understanding who Jesus is and how that affects us. Now, again, that can also turn bad, right? That can also, that can also have a bent that's not great, which is the crusade, which is burning heretics alive, right? There, there are bad side effects to that for sure that you have to keep in check with scripture, but that doesn't mean that devotion for right teaching is an evil thing in and of itself, because that's just simply not true. So yes, your love for God means you will love others and it informs your behavior toward others. That does not mean that you're like, oh, we'll just agree to disagree on sin. Like these two things are true at the same time. And that doesn't seem to be what he's saying, though I could be misunderstanding him. I think based upon the context of this entire sermon, I don't think I am. Um, all right, let's, uh, three minutes. Let's finish this baby up. When that happens, as that happens, then and not until then, they will know that we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they will know that we are Christians by our love. Don't miss next week. Ladies, don't miss week five. If you're married, have your husbands on the front row. If you have a boyfriend, have him on the second row. <laughs> because our mission and our goal and the reason we're doing this series is to strip away the temple thinking from all of us 
so that we can once again engage on this thing that was brand new, a totally different way of approaching life within the context of a brand new covenant that said your sin is paid for. Now live a life that reflects the forgiveness of God as you mirror that in your forgiveness of the people around you. Don't miss. Next week, let me pray for you. Heavenly Okay, so um, a couple things. Let's go over the three things we're looking for in every sermon. One is scripture read. A very loose yes, but no. Uh, we did reference some scriptures, never reading them within the context outright to really determine like why what was being said was being said. So if we're going by pure technicality, um, yes, we technically read some scripture. Um, two, do we exegete that scripture given context and culture? That's no, that's a clear no there. Um, in fact, I would say a lot of the history we did get um, was half truth history at best. Again, please, 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 please check out those links in the description. Um, those are going to help you so much understand church history, doc documented, cited church history um, that will be in just incredibly valuable for you to check out. Um and then three, did was the gospel of Jesus Christ preached? Um, I'm going to go no, and this is why. Um, he mentioned Jesus' death for us, but then turns it into be about us. So he says, Jesus died for you. And um, then he highlights the, it was for you um, that like this mindset was for. Like he doesn't mention sin. He refuses to define sin and morality within this sermon. Um, he does talk about Jesus' death. He doesn't talk at all about Jesus' resurrection in so far as I remember. He had a perfect opportunity to do that, but he doesn't do that. Um, he focuses heavily on Jesus' teachings, but not his resurrection. He mentions um, uh, the Father and Jesus, but leaves out the Holy Spirit, which was interesting. I didn't make a note of it when he said it, but that was very interesting that uh, the Holy Spirit was left out of the Godhead in that comment. Not that that means he doesn't, I'm not making any assumptions. I'm just saying he, he left him out. So when it comes to the gospel being preached, that we, um, that Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection uh, was for our sins, um, we didn't get that in this sermon. Um, we also didn't get that as a result of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, we have new life and new life in Christ through a transformed mind. Um, this, this sermon was very much geared moralistically while at the same time not defining morality. It was very much be nice to people, but I'm not going to tell you what you know morality necessarily looks like because you have to figure that out. Um, my whole reason of doing the sermon review was to look at that clip in context, the clip I used for the meme to make sure that I, you know, wasn't taking him out of context. And all I, all I got from this was that that wasn't the worst part of the sermon. There were way more concerning parts to this sermon. The other two Andy Stanley sermons reviews I've done, I think have were more recently preached than this one that we looked at today. But 
this is way more concerning than the other two. I felt like the other two, I mean, they weren't like fantastic out of the park, but they weren't like super concerning. I think this gave us a lot more of a look behind the curtain on what Andy actually believes. And if this is what he believes, as I said before, this is very much like progressive Christianity light, or at least that's how it comes off to me. I'd be incredibly interested in your opinion. Uh, if you want to put that in the comment section below, as always, am I being too critical? Was I being too soft? I just feel like, especially the church history was like just terribly communicated, which then leads to other things that aren't great either. Um, so anyway, let me know what you think. And if you're interested in this sort of format, again, make sure you click the boxes on the side or check out the link below for other sermon reviews we've done. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you next week. See ya.